A $66 billion arms agreement between France and Australia disappeared on September 15th when AUKUS, a trilateral security pact, was unexpectedly announced. This new alliance between the U.S., U.K., and Australia sent shockwaves throughout the South Pacific, where it is expected to change the security dynamic with China. However, its effect is also deeply felt in Europe, with an enraged and humiliated French ally. What is behind this Australian submarine deal, and what impact will it have? From the School of Diplomacy at Seton Hall University, this is The Global Current. I'm your host, Eric Bunce. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students. Covering the situation domestically is Kieran Buzanson. Hey, Kieran. Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. And uh, focusing on international reactions and events is Peter Egerding. Hey, Peter. Hey, Eric. Happy to be here. Happy to have you. All right. So let's go back to the old deal. As I understand it, there was an arms agreement between France and Australia What were the details of that first deal, Peter? Sure. So in 2016, there was a bilateral agreement between France and Australia. That agreement was for over $60 billion for 12 submarines that would be diesel electric, and they would be produced, and you know everything that goes into that kind of a deal would be taken first by the French taxpayers, and then Australia would reimburse them uh, upon completion of the deal. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason that there's a little bit of risk there for France is because the taxpayers are the ones taking several billion USD deal at the beginning, and Australia is the one that has to come at the end, and of course there's some tension that came down the road a couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what were some of the problems, can you expand upon either of you, what were some of the problems with this original deal that ultimately led to it, it, its collapse? Sure, so the biggest issue is that these were not nuclear submarines. From The research that we've put together here, one of the biggest problems was that China, a large competitor in the region with Australia and to much of the West as well, has significantly stronger naval presence than Australia. And Australia wants to at least have some level of naval power, resources that can compete with China. And they felt that as this deal was coming out, it was taking too long, it was swamped by delays, and at the end of the day, they wouldn't get enough power for the amount of money that they had invested. Interesting. And, and that I, I say interesting because the way I understand it, France does have nuclear submarines. Can you want to expand on that a little bit? Correct. France, being one of the world's foremost nuclear powers, um, having actually 75% of the electricity grid powered by nuclear energy and being the third largest state with nuclear weapons after the United States and Russia, has had nuclear submarines and ballistic missiles therewith associated for many, many, many decades now. Crucially, this is some sort of technology that they didn't want to export. France is one of the world's largest uh, weapons exporters, but Mm -hmm. nuclear secrets, as with all nuclear states, are very closely guarded. One of the important things that I'd actually like to highlight about the original submarine deal, where it differentiates with the current one, I think we'll see play play out a little bit later on, is these electric diesel submarines, an important factor of them, there were 12 versus the current eight nuclear submarines which are being proposed by the New Deal. The important thing about the mechanics of these submarines was that they were able to be maintained by the Australian Navy. They have the domestic capabilities to maintain mm. the submarines for the foreseeable future. Australia does not have any nuclear infrastructure. Part of the reason that they're making a deal with the British and the United States is that those countries do have the 
nuclear capabilities and technology to maintain and create these submarines in the first place. Part of the New Deal states that the U.S. will actually be doing the maintenance of these submarines while they serve in the Australian Navy, Mm -hmm. a crucial difference from the previous deal in which Australia had the domestic capability to keep these and maintain them from themselves, independent of other countries. Okay. All right. Well, that's important to note. Uh, Let's turn now to this New Deal. And this new AUKUS deal, as I understand it, it's a lot more, we call it the Australian submarine deal, but it's a lot more than just submarines. What is in this new AUKUS deal and why was it, you already hinted at this, but why was it that Australia chose to go with this new deal? Sure. Well, there's a lot of different reasons, but it seems like the first one is China. A lot of the issues that the West sees coming to militarization generally end with China, since China is perceived as a large, maybe threat is the wrong word, but something to balance against if you subscribe to that realist school of thought. And (laughs) in the research that I did, it looks to me that the diesel-electric submarines would not have been enough of a threat, enough of a deterrence in the region. And as well, bringing in the United States is always going to be something beneficial when you're working on an international scale. The United States, well, China has the largest navy per capita, and Mm -hmm. with the most ships, the United States has much higher technology and much better troops, much better 20 aircraft carriers as compared to two. There's a large gap between the United States and China when it comes to the actual mm-hmm. strength of their of their navies. And, you know, bringing them into that region is always a good thing for Australia. Okay, Karen, go ahead. I would also like to highlight a, a crucial um, understanding of the numbers of, of the Chinese Navy and military. In the case of the Chinese Navy, while they do have the highest number of ships per world, if you look at the actual composition of these ships, An overwhelming majority of um, the purported 600 ships they have in their navy is patrol craft or coastal patrol boats. These are not boats that you would find in blue water or in open seas or out striking towards Australia. They simply do not have the range or the uh, supply lines to do so, Mm -hmm. which require larger warships with a traditional fleet presence. So as far as the actual naval paradigm between the United States and Western powers and China, for actually frigates, destroyers, aircraft carriers, traditional aspects of a fleet, Sure. They're more or less on par. Okay. And you're getting at this kind of great power competition between the U.S. and China. And on paper, sure, it makes sense that Australia would go with the U.S. if they had to choose, though. But that's the key word because they hadn't chosen, per se, before. Why now? Why has Australia decided? What, what's the situation in Australia that they decided to, to bet it all on the U.S.? What, what, what pushed them towards that? Well, if you look at the domestic scene in Australia... Australian politics are currently dominated, obviously, by COVID and the economic fallout that comes as a consequence of that global pandemic, but also the infiltration of Chinese money and influence in Australian politics. This has made Australian politicians, and more importantly, Australian citizens, rather nervous about the encroachment of China in its politics, in infrastructure investments, in buying public shares of companies. And in a type of influence that is not as direct as we're used to uh, with traditional military power, but in a way that they can twist their arm in any sort of diplomatic flare-ups. Yeah. And I think what you see here is a natural pivot for Australia towards the Anglosphere, towards ex-Commonwealth countries and people which with which they might be more familiar to work as to be working with. Okay. And so you kind of see like this this original deal with France a deal for, for diesel-powered submarines, a deal that they, just for, for hardware that they could mm-hmm. run themselves, is fundamentally different than the all-encompassing, really great power struggle that they've kind of put themselves into at this point with AUKUS, along with the UK, of course, who we'll get to in a second. Yeah, let's go to the French aspect of the story, which is a really important aspect of the story, because US and France are 
really old allies, in fact, the oldest allies uh, in terms of, of the U.S., but this deal caused a lot of anger and backlash on the part of French. Can you go into more detail about what this backlash was and why the deal caused so much anger? Sure. So the biggest issue with the, the way France responded to this and the biggest issue that France saw was that this was not an open negotiation. France wasn't able to leverage any new technology, bring anything new to the table. And in fact, they actually had this new deal leaked to them uh, via the internet, via social media. Mm -hmm. It didn't actually come from the United States, the United Kingdom, or Australia, Mm -hmm. which seems to be bad diplomacy, at least in the French perspective. And so France uh, reacted by withdrawing its diplomats, not from the United Kingdom notably, but from the United States and Australia, which is a very public act. It's not something behind closed doors, and it's an outward expression of maybe anger is the wrong word, but uh, friction between the, the allies. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, to withdraw an ambassador is normally something which, as, as I understand it, something that's reserved for, for really great disputes. I mean, we withdrew our ambassador from the Soviet Union or for Russia. Mm-hmm. To do this among really old allies is rather rare. It, it hasn't happened before between the U.S. and French. Can you give us any more insight, Kieran, on really why there was so much so much backlash that came out of the French side. Sure. I, I think the current domestic political scene in France, particularly with the upcoming elections, actually has a lot to play in here, particularly the growing popularity of the French right, who are um, notoriously Gaullist mm. in their foreign policy views, um, has put Macron, Emmanuel Macron, president of the French Republic, in a very difficult position. He has extremely low popularity rates amongst the French, typically under 40%. And in a bid, in my opinion, uh, to maintain an appearance of strength and appearance of assertion of French power both internationally and in the European scene, especially with the recent German elections. He's trying to both maintain strength in the domestic political sense and reject power overseas and on the continent. And you see this a little bit playing with the more recent dynamics in which he's called for Europe to kind of become a stronger pillar within NATO um, Mm -hmm. and and sort of making his own um, grouping or alliance grouping outside of this AUKUS framework. Yeah, outside of the the need for the U.S. Mm -hmm. or the U.K. for that matter. So they withdrew their ambassadors. They described it as a stab in the back. Mm -hmm. Or at least the the French foreign minister did. Manuel Macron was pretty quiet on it for the most part at first. What about the U.K.? Because you mentioned notably that they didn't respond to the U.K. What, What does that say? Sure. So the French foreign minister was quoted as saying the U.K. was like the fifth wheel on this deal, according to the Washington Post. (laughs) Uh, which seems to be sort of a snub or a side comment, sort of. It it seems like the U.K. was sort of involved in this deal maybe to assist with the United States or to facilitate some dialogue, but for the most part, the brunt of the deal is between the United States and Australia. This might be a way of Australia and the United States including Europe, Mm -hmm. especially since uh, both of them are not in Europe, but they're traditionally brought into the sphere of the Western nations, and so this might be a way to bridge that gap. As well, there is right now a good deal of competition between the United Kingdom and France on many other topics. Uh, The United Kingdom is going through a similar issue as it is in in France with a lot of pressure to take more conservative uh, points, Mm -hmm. especially on immigration, for example, and on international relations. And so we see this kind of as a trend throughout Europe, but it's playing out in the scenes behind here as well. Mm -hmm. And Kieran, go ahead. I think another motivator in the quietness on the British side and the indifference, frankly, on the French side is not only do you have kind of the international dynamics 
between those two particular countries that Peter brought up, these fishing trawling disputes in the English Channel, issues of immigration, and as well as the Northern Ireland Protocol and a lot of the fallout from Brexit. In the French case, many in French government and within French society view the UK as a bastion of the United States within Europe. It's not only part of the Anglosphere, but commonly operates diplomatically and culturally in tandem with the United States and the trends Mm -hmm. that it sets forward. French don't really view, in some cases, the UAK as a completely independent actor from U.S. foreign policy. Whether this be Iraq in 2003, where the French refused to join the coalition and the British went in a little bit headstrong, or it be more recently with AUKUS. I think you also see a, a French desire to actually refocus its, as it has historically, strength on the continent to strengthen its ties within mm-hmm. the EU because they see the UK as trying to float off into the mid-Atlantic and they're recommitting with allies a little bit closer to home. Uh-huh. And that's kind of that whole thing with like the European Defense Force mm-hmm. and having a, a separate European army which hasn't really been around for a while. <laughs> I understand there's also could be some other factors behind the French reaction. Perhaps they're maneuvering a bit to get some other deals. I, I saw recently that they reached another deal with Greece a couple billion for Navy ships. I understand they're reaching out to India. Can you tell me a little more about that, Kieran, perhaps? Yes. So France, actually, in the past decade, has had an interesting history of reaching out to India through particularly arms deals. They sold a number of Rafael interceptors, which are fighter jets that the French Air Force uses in their in their mainline air force, as well as some smaller arm, arms contracts for inter- infantry weapons and smaller armored vehicles. Um, French ties with India go back a while, obviously, to the colonial period, but in, more, in, in a more recent case, um, they have been France's ally in the Indo-Pacific, and it's often forgotten that France actually does have some strategic interest in the Indo-Pacific. It's not just Australia. Obviously, it's more pertinent to them. Mm-hmm. But France pos- French possessions in their uh, département et territoire d'outre-mer, d'Antam, in the, particularly in the, in the Indian Ocean, but also near Australia in the Pacific, have French actually concerned for Chinese influence, because mm-hmm. uh, France actually relies quite heavily on the exclusive economic zones um, that gets her having these overseas territories and sees gotcha. India as a viable buffer to the Chinese. Okay, so that's the French reaction. Let's 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 turn back now to the AUKUS reaction to the French reaction, if that makes <laughs> any sense. Were they were surprised? Were they prepared for this French reaction? Uh, Peter, you want to take us through that? Sure. I think for the most part, it wasn't it wasn't this loud reaction that you know World War Three was never on, in the cards here. But <laughs> no, yeah, but. It, it was something that Joe Biden, uh, President Joe Biden, was at the United Nations in New York, and he had to pause speaking with a lot of the groups to go and call Macron and have a conversation. And mm-hmm. he ended up meeting with delegates from France as well as Australia to discuss you know, solving this issue. But it didn't end up being something, you know, very crazy. Although it was, it was something that made headlines, and notably, other nations looked on as well to see this happening. To have this dispute between several allies uh, on a very public stage without much behind the scenes, without much coordination, makes it seem like this deal is weaker, makes it seem like this deal was kind of thrown together at the last minute, and that France was just cut out. So I think that was a lot of the reaction that the international community saw, uh, but I think it was mostly positive. And Kieran, you have something to add? I'd also like to add another interesting dynamic is part of this lack of communication, I think, stems from the 
history of intercoordination and cooperation between many of these Anglosphere nations. Um, in the case of the Australians and the British and the United States, they have had the Five Eyes Agreement, which is an intelligence agreement between um, several Commonwealth countries as well as the UK and the US to share information and espionage tactics and operations. And so they have actually quite a long history of mm -hmm. not, of cooperating with each other and not telling people like the French or other allies that they might have more been traditionally associated with. Yeah. I, I will say that this, I mean, this French reaction was actually covered pretty, a lot in the U.S. Mm -hmm. media or, or what they would call the Anglophone media uh, in France um, because it's not always known for giving France a very positive shake. But this, I mean, this story was covered a lot. And it seems like the U.S., the UK and Australia were pretty caught off guard that they didn't fully anticipate the French reaction and that was part of their, their slow reaction to, to the French reaction. Absolutely. I think this wasn't something that they saw being this loud of an issue. Uh, but I think a lot of it has to do with the domestic situations happening across mm -hmm. the world. Of course. Right now we've got COVID, we've got a lot of elections happening in a lot of the Western democracies and we have a period that's been full of strife, full of issues uh, mm. for the last couple of years. And so this is sort of that you want to look strong domestically. And if you're a leader, mm. you make a bit of a fuss. And I think that's something that they've all done at different times. You know, Boris Johnson, Macron and Biden sure. it, responding to different events. And I think this is another one of those sort of uh, I think France wanted to look powerful and, and made some of these changes to show that they couldn't be stepped over like that. OK. And, and Karen, do you? Yeah, and underlining—I mean, underlining the domestic situation in many of these countries, as we brought up with Australia and the, the UK, yeah. all these countries are dealing with enormous economic fallout and, frankly, stagnant recovery. In a bid to maybe distract and kind of redirect a little bit of that outrage, I think the U.S. and Australia did not quite expect the French to have to pay so much attention to this. Mm -hmm. They thought that they were just as concerned with the domestic issues in France as the U.S. and Australia were within their own countries. In the U.S.'s case. It's trying to juggle a lot of plates at the same time at the moment. Um, you have an immensely controversial set of bills that are probably not going to pass in Congress that are more or less the entire agenda of the current president, which he's a little more focused on than okay. this particular deal. Yeah. Um, and in Australia, you have some of the str most stringent COVID lockdown measures, which the population is quite upset over. Uh -huh. And I, I think that both countries, speaking from their own experience, assumed that the same would be true in France, and then Macron would be a little more concerned with the fallout in his country rather yeah. than just, you know, multi-billion dollar submarine deal. Yeah. No, I mean, that's true. I mean, it, it is a story that maybe has gotten more media credit than it, it even deserves. Well, I want to ask you this question then, and I feel like we've already started to get at it, though. Is this just surface tension between the U.S. and France, or does this animosity run deeper? Is this just a simple di diplomatic spat, or will this become a lasting rupture? Uh, Peter, you want to go first? Sure. I think this is probably just a, a, a domestic spat. We've seen a lot of changes in foreign policy, especially from the United States, switching from President mm. Donald Trump to President Biden. And we've also seen a lot of, like we've already brought up, a lot of domestic issues that have popped mm -hmm. up for a lot of these countries. I don't think this will cause a rift between them that mm -hmm. will be long-lasting. They're certainly still members of NATO and working together, and they have a lot of agreements and things like that. But I do think that this is significant, mm -hmm. and I think if we see a lot of these issues continue, they might start to build up. This wasn't just a, a very small speed bump, but you know it could be worse in the future. 
Yeah, absolutely. And then, Karen, your take? I'd like to reiterate broadly most of what Peter had just said, although I would like to highlight that there is a slightly different trajectory in French foreign policy. And while they agree on the U- with the U.S. on many points, you see the French intervention in the Sahel as mm-hmm. part of a broader extension of the war on terror. You also do see significantly different paths that the French have pursued, whether it be reinvesting in continental allies, pursuing a more European strategy versus um, working more directly with the United States around the world. And you also see French hesitancy at U.S. At US foreign policy in Iraq in 2003. So while they do agree on many points, there are some notable places where they do disagree, though overall these are, I think, speed bumps in the end and yeah. that they will eventually be bridged over. Yeah. So to, to kind of summarize a little bit, we see that for the most part, this appears to be a diplomatic spat uh, trying to draw away attention a bit from a lot of domestic problems within these mm-hmm. two states. However, there are signs that it could be an indicator overall of over time differences between allies growing um, that started back under the Trump administration and continue, and perhaps even before. All right, there's another big actor in this story. We talked a little bit towards the beginning, but that's China because this deal, well, it seems to me to be very much angled, or the AUKUS deal seems to be very much angled at China. So, so how did they how did they react? Sure. So China has basically been saying this has been an arms race. It's escalation that shouldn't exist. Kind of the classic uh, international relations playbook for how you deal with uh, your, your maybe enemies is the wrong word, but competition, gaining stronger, uh, stronger military, stronger navy, whatever it might uh-huh. be. And China is, of course, not happy about any of these deals. Uh, but I think China shouldn't really be upset to see this huge spat between a lot of its uh, competitors. So (laughs) I think there's sort of a a bit of a balance. I would say China will definitely serve to lose if there are those eight uh, nuclear submarines facilitated and brought to Australia, though, in the future. Yeah. So maybe their their response wasn't as strong as it was because they kind of got to sit there and let the the French and the U.S. and and everyone else spat over it. But, I mean, still, they, they can't have been happy about it. Uh, and I'm honestly, given the response we've seen for some other things from China, I'm surprised it wasn't louder. Can you give any indication why it wasn't like a stronger response? Yes, while their response was not at all surprising, as they should not have been surprised with the deal that was made, um, those many of the countries involved in this deal have been angling toward that for quite a while um, in, in a pivot towards reassessing the Indo-Pacific region strategically. You know, China, China shouldn't be at all surprised, nor are they actually surprised by this move. I think it's beautiful for a few reasons. The the first is that, again, this is something that they were expecting. Mm-hmm. And the second is they're actually dealing with some immense problematic domestic issues. Right now, a massive Chinese realtor, Evergrande, is set to have kind of a Lehman Brothers moment, um, <laughs> a la 2008, in, in Wall Street, which actually represents uh, the real estate business in China, represents about third of their economy and has been a major proponent of the growth in that country. Okay. Much of the Chinese middle class is contingent on that growth, and there's massive public dissatisfaction with that uh, with that pr- company in particular. Xi Jinping and many in the, in the CCP are actually extremely concerned with that issue, um, which has their focus and attention completely concentrated on, on that rather than something that mm-hmm. they frankly have been expecting for probably a while. So I, I feel like it's a broken record. We're saying it again. Domestic uh, situations in a country have affected this story greatly. Because they're so concerned about the economy right now, they, they don't have full attention turn to foreign affairs at this moment. Go ahead, Peter. Yeah, I wanted to add as well that escalation in the South China Sea is not exactly something new uh, over the last (laughs) decade. Uh, We've seen lots of kind of political games uh, fly by, sending 
ships into territories that, you know, each side believe are governed differently. And we've seen that sort of escalation for a long time now. So, you know, adding adding new submarines to this isn't going to necessarily tip the balance of power. Though it is an expression of a little bit more strength, I'm sure when they're created, the United States and Australia and the UK will have some joint military exercises and that kind of a show mm. of force in the region. So I don't think this is necessarily something absolutely new to China. And this response, yeah. I think, is very standard, calling out the, the escalation. Yeah. It's very much an example of routine brinksmanship, which has been the cycle that these uh, nations that are involved yeah, have, have sure. been in for the last 15 years. Yeah, I mean, maybe not. This isn't the Cuban Missile Crisis, for sure. Well, actually, let's stay on that for a sec. Do you think this deal, it's eight submarines, but it's more than eight submarines, too. It's also broader integration between militaries and, and intelligence communities. Could this deal really affect the geopolitical balance in the South Pacific? I would say no. I don't think it's going to make a, an impact that will absolutely remove China's influence from the region, for example. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably not going to happen without a huge, major, multilateral mm-hmm. deal or some way of actually dividing up the territories. Uh, but I do think it is it is a show of force. It's a, putting yep. the United States closer. We've seen attempts economically in the past through the TPP and other things the United States has tried. Mm-hmm. But to put... Yeah ships in Australian ports is definitely an escalation. Go ahead. While it is an escalation, I don't think it actually changes the paradigm all that much. Um, China still feels like it's slowly being cornered in by U.S. allies, Japan, South Korea, more recently, kind of Vietnam and Indonesia, where Mm -hmm. the U.S. is also investing in, and traditionally at least the Philippines. That kind of slow-moving noose has not really changed. It has not gotten that much tighter, and it has not gotten much wider. So China still feels threatened. They still feel cornered. I I don't see how this majorly upsets the strategic paradigm in that sense. Sure, sure. What it does say to me is that the Biden administration is truly serious Mm -hmm. about combating China, though. I remember the the last show I did as an analyst was on, it was right after he got elected, before he was sworn in, um, and about what his foreign policy is going to look like. And one of the things we speculated is that he's he's going to be a little tougher on China. Well, this deal, I mean, it shows that he's serious about escalating. He's not afraid to escalate with China at all, even more so than Trump mm-hmm. in some respects. Go ahead, Kieran. I think it's reflective of the last two decades have really been a transition point in U.S. policy towards China. If yeah. you look at the latter part of the 20th century, there was very much an encouragement of opening up the Chinese economy and in- integrating it with the world economy. I think the election in 2016 and the Trump presidency has very much changed that paradigm. Although you m- might have seen the pivot start under Obama, yeah. the addition of inflammatory rhetoric and tariffs during the Trump administration has really kind of opened Pandora's box toward more escalatory and more uh, heavy-handed policies towards yeah. China and being a little more confrontational, yeah. which marks a, quite, a, quite a difference from yeah. American policy 40 there's, years ago. Yeah, there's no more good neighbor. <laughs> no. no more good neighbor policy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you, Peter. I wanted to add as well that the United States has just suffered a pretty large blow internationally uh, sure. in with the Taliban in Afghanistan. We've been hearing the hearings uh, in the House and the Senate this week, and the United States needs to make itself look like a strong international player. This is a a large setback and something Mm -hmm. that is sort of underpinning this as well. So I just thought that was an interesting angle to add. Well, guys, for covering all aspects of this story, from AUKUS to to France to China, it's been a fantastic discussion. Thank you so much, Kieran and Peter, for joining me here today. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. Thank you for coming on. Okay, great. Well, let's start with what's happening at the U.N., So this event is taking place in New York City. It started on September 21st, and it runs until September 30th. The UN General Assembly makes key decisions for the UN, including approving the UN budget, 
appointing the Secretary General on recommendation of the Security Council and electing the non-permanent members of the Security Council. Each of the 193 member states of the United Nations has an equal vote. The Taliban, who now control the country of Afghanistan, want to speak at the UN General Assembly in New York as the official government of Afghanistan. A senior U.S. State Department official says, quote, it would take some time to deliberate, end quote, meaning that it is not likely that they will speak at this General Assembly. However, it is possible that the Taliban could represent Afghanistan at future General Assemblies. Okay, great. So the Taliban looking like they can gain some legitimacy through the U.N. system. And then your next story you mentioned about uh, Haiti again. What's going on there? Yes, so Bedford Claude made accusations against Ariel Henry, Haiti's prime minister, about having involvement in the murder of President Jovenel Moise and asked that a judge investigates him. President Moise was assassinated on July 7, 2021. As of right now, many Haitians are fleeing their country and relocating to the United States and many other Latin American countries. The Biden administration is deporting many Haitians who have illegally crossed the Mexican-American border in Texas. This has raised some controversy in the United States, as many have criticized President Biden for this, calling the deportations a Trump-era policy. There has been alleged mistreatment of the migrants at the border, with the Border Patrol using horses and whips to round up the migrants. After a public outrage, the Border Patrol will no longer be able to use horses. Okay, so continuing problems in Haiti and at the border. Thank you, David. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. No problem. And that is all we had time for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for updates on upcoming shows. This show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew. Executive producer Jared Dang, associate producers Jasmine DeLeon and Joaquin Matsumis, and technical producer Chimdi Chukwukere. And, of course, your host, Eric Bunce. The Global Current is brought to you by the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thank you. <laughs>